John 12. That's where we're going to be. Uh, you may be thinking, what, what, wait a minute, why are we? Well, we're just working our way through the Gospel of John, and this is, just happens to be where we are, and so we're going to tackle uh, hopefully something a little bit different. But this text uh, is really dripping with a lot of symbolism. Uh, and so I want to point out a couple things, and then I want to uh, kind of introduce you to a uh, really fascinating research project and uh, an article that I read this week. Uh, but, but let's set the scene where we are in John 12, in case uh, maybe you're watching online and you haven't been with us for um, the 44 weeks of John up to this point. But um, Jesus is, is coming here to enter Jerusalem, right? And, and what we know about the timeline is that he's recently raised, I mean, in this timeline, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. It's, it's really just happened. And, uh, and again, if you're watching online or maybe somehow you forgot, it wasn't that like Lazarus was really dead and he's resurrected to life. So it's a real raising of the dead. And so Jesus has just raised someone from the dead back to life. And so like it would be in our day and age, um, it, 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 there's huge crowds that are beginning to follow Jesus because of this. Um, at the end of the text we read from last week, we, we even see that the religious leaders want to re-kill Lazarus on account of the fact that he is uh, bringing many people to believe in Jesus by his testimony. And if you remember, and this is going to be important today, the religious leaders see their position of power and prestige as being threatened by Jesus. And we read that in verse 19. And so they want him gone as well. So they're having these murderous thoughts because they're about to lose their place of privilege. So all this adds up to a situation that's really tense with drama, right? I mean, we've been in those rooms before where it's like you can feel the electricity and kind of the tense, uh, the, the air in the room. Uh, and so you have the full spectrum of kind of mindless fandom on the one hand, right, where people are just, they love Jesus without really understanding what he's about. And on the other hand, you, want, you have people who want to see Jesus killed and gotten ridden of. Uh, and so it's a very polarizing moment, which we, we don't know anything about polarizing moments, right? Um, that was a joke. We, we definitely do. Uh, but this is a tense moment. There's people on very far extremes of both sides. And this is the moment that Jesus is choosing to kind of unequivocally reveal himself as the true king of Israel. Like, there's no doubt in anyone's mind after this. So, so this is the scene. The crowds that had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem after having uh, either seen or heard about the raising of Lazarus from the dead are there. They want to see him because he's done this sign. Uh, and as we, as we read in verse 17 last week. Uh, but let me just turn your attention back to verse 13. Uh, here for a little bit. The crowd says, as they go out to meet Jesus, like that we know this, we sing this song on Palm Sunday, this is the, the, the line. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the word they start with, Hosanna, that word literally means save us, or save us we pray. Uh, one commentator I read said it's even, if you're familiar with kind of British maybe jargon, God save the queen. That's kind of a similar phrase that they might say. It's a, it's a cry of anticipation. They're excited. 
They want to be delivered from uh, their oppressor, who at this time is the Roman Empire. Now, we need to know a little bit of Jewish national history, okay? About 100 years before this moment, there was a warrior named Judas Maccabeus. Uh, If you know the book of Maccabees, that's that's kind of where that comes from. He had driven out a different enemy at that time. Uh, At that time, it was the Greeks. And when he did that, crowds quoted then the same thing they quoted and saying here, which is from Psalm 118 in verse 25, which says, Lord, save us. Uh, The palm branches, again, the symbolism, the palm branches that they gathered and brought out to meet Jesus are symbolic of the reality. And this is important for us today that they are they are thinking in terms of political salvation. That's what they're thinking in terms of. The palm branch is on the coin of the second Maccabean revolt. Okay. Which was a, polit- a geopolitical revolt in which a group of Jews sought and gained uh, that geopolitical power back for the people of Israel. Like this is nationalistic uh, stuff going on here. That's what the palm meant. Okay, so this, the point is that what the people, this Palm Sunday crowd, thought they were getting in Jesus was this earthly king who would have, uh, who, who would have established earthly power to, in order to bring them safety and security and make their nation great. That's, that's what they wanted. So the crowd expected this moment to be the one, you know, Jesus issues the call to arms, let's overthrow the Romans. But Jesus does something in the middle of this, as Jesus is prone to do, uh, that the crowds didn't understand, they didn't expect it, even though it's written about by the prophet Zechariah in, prof- in Zechariah 9.9, which says this. This is Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what Jesus is doing here is symbolically saying two things simultaneously. He's saying the same thing to us this morning. Here's the first thing. He is the true king. Like, Make no qualms about it. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one that Israel and you and I have been waiting for. He's the savior that you and I need. All of that stuff. He's the one who, as we just saw, can, can bring life from death. He is the resurrection and the life. He can bring life and order to the darkness, the chaos of our world. We saw that Lazarus is symbolic somewhat of our spiritual death that Jesus brings back to life. And so Jesus is claiming that he is the rightful Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of your life, or he should be the Lord of your life. That's what Jesus is claiming. He's the king. There's no others like him, which leads to the second claim. And so at the same time as all of that, Jesus is king. He's powerful. He's a different kind of king, though. He's a new kind of king that we haven't seen before. He's not like the kings of this earth. And this is where some of us start to lose a little bit of interest in Jesus, if we're honest, because some of us, a lot of us, uh, from time to time, are like the crowds here. We want a king who's going to give us what we want, right? We, we want a king who's going to make our life better. Now, normally, a king would arrive to the city riding on a war horse, but as we know, this isn't how Jesus shows up here, and that's on purpose. He, he shows up on a donkey, or the, the foal, the colt of a donkey, as we read about. The donkey here is seen as an animal, not of victory and war and power, but of peace and humility, this, this was and this is so different 
from how we tend, if we're not careful, to think about spreading the message of God's love to others. Like this moment here, if you know anything about Christian history, stands in sharp contrast to the idea of Christendom. If you know anything about the history of the church and how we thought about conquering things to make them Christian, this moment just obliterates that idea. Even Jesus' own disciples here in this moment don't get it. John uh, says in verse 16 that we just heard, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I just... It, it, the humor of this is not lost to me that John is writing this and he's one of the people that didn't get it and then he got it after. I just think that stuff in the Bible is so humanizing and funny. Uh, so what this crowd wanted, and again, what you and I, I think if we were honest, at least from time to time, want, is a ruler who will come and just make the world how we want the world to be and use force if he has to. Like, just, just do it, okay? But this is just not the way of King Jesus. And I'm not going to lie to you. It frustrates me sometimes. Like, really? We have to do this by allegiance and love? Can you just make some laws to make this work, Jesus? And, and the crowd reacts the same way. Once they realize this in a few days, they basically throw him aside, if you know the, 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 the passion story. But right now, at this moment, the crowds are like swimming in their own enthusiasm. People who had seen Lazarus resurrected from the tomb and those who had heard about it, they, they're like two tides of the, the sea or, or two rivers rushing together. The excitement is huge. The Pharisees sum it up in verse 19, again, as they lament their, their loss of their own power. They say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And then now John injects this event, which, uh, depending on who you read, probably didn't happen um, uh, at this moment. It pro- probably happened the next day. But remember, when you're reading the Gospel of John, Uh, John is not trying to give you a chronological history of events. He's trying to write these things down as signs so that you might believe, and in believing you might have life. So the point here is that John wants us to see these events together, okay? Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, this isn't unusual to have some Greeks at Passover, right? Because remember the scene, we're at Passover. The Greeks are explorers. They, 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 they are probably the first people to just wander for the sake of wandering to explore and discover things. Uh, one commentator I read this week even had this quote from, it was an un, unnamed ancient Greek source uh, that said this about Greeks. You Athenians, that's a name for Greeks, you Athenians will never rest yourselves, nor will you even let anyone else rest. So they're known for exploring, and this isn't just physically, they also explore philosophically, right? Philosophy, Greeks, we, we know that. And so Greeks are characteristically searching for truth, and so it's not unusual for a Greek to search through the philosophies of his day uh, to approach a Jewish rabbi and ask to speak to him. So when we see the request that they wish to see Jesus, the language there actually indicates that they're kind of like, they're, they're, they keep asking. They want to see him. This is a, the idea is that they kept repeating their request because they really wanted to hear Jesus and his teaching, and they really wanted to test the truth of what Jesus had to say in the hopes that it would lead them to the ultimate truth, which John is very aware of, because you remember back to John 1, he uses this very Greek idea of calling Jesus the logos. 
And so it's no accident that John wants to inject that here. So John wants us to see that Gentiles are included in the events of Jesus, both his incarnation and his sacrifice. Uh, In the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, for instance, we see that wise men come from the east to see Jesus. And here, right before the cross, we see that wise men from the west come to seek Jesus. So Jesus uh, is framed by Gentiles on both sides of his life. And so with the presentation of the king in this triumphal entry and then this pursuit of him, we can imagine how, how like, weird the next phrase that Jesus says must have been, right? And so, uh, again, we imagine that there's kind of he, people see he's about to speak, so sh- 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 he's going to say something. In verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so, you know, people are like, Wait a minute, what does that mean? Uh, many people are like, oh, he's about, to, he's about to conquest. It's about to happen. We're going to overthrow. Right? He's about to announce this campaign against the Romans, initiate the kingdom, and, and, and do all this stuff. And then Jesus, in, in verse 24, speaks the sentence that's kind of a letdown for that whole thing. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, this is... Imagine, like, if you're there and you're excited and he says the Son of Man is going to be glorified and then he says this, like, you're, there's a hush that falls over, right? Like, what? What does this mean? Jesus is talking about a different kind of king. A king who, who brings his rule and reign through death and sacrifice, not through conquest. That's the illustration here that he uses. When you hold a kernel of, let's say, corn in your hand, or, or in, in this case, wheat, you can't see what's in there. All you can see is a little kernel, right? And so each grain, each seed contains everything it needs to go into the ground and then produce more fruit. That, that's how seeds work. And so uh, in planting season, you throw the grain in the ground, you, you give it some water, it, it goes in the ground and, and dies like it's in a tomb. This is the illustration that Jesus is using. And then it comes back and it multiplies, and so Jesus is telling the crowd that he is going to fulfill his kingly role of bringing his rule and reign to the world, but he's not going to do it in the way that they think. He's going to do it by dying, and then when he returns, comes back, resurrects, multiplying that resurrection life in others. This is how Jesus is going to rule. So his rule is going to go far beyond any earthly king, any nation, any ruler, because he is not going to rule by compulsion, but by allegiance. Jesus' rule and reign doesn't come by legislation, it comes by love. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's not going to come by power or might. Jesus is telling the crowd, he's telling us something that's so important about the way to true life, or as John continually calls it, everlasting life. Jesus is saying that he is going to fulfill this kingly role by dying, and by dying, reproducing and multiplying his life, and those, in those who will, uh, by faith, follow him on this path. So, so again, his rule and reign is going to spread far beyond anything that war can produce, anything that political power can produce. It can't force that. Jesus is setting up the way of the cross over and against the way of the empire. The the way of the empires of this world, ours included, is that we see that power comes through force 
and control, but that's not what Jesus announced on Palm Sunday. He didn't come and announce that. Jesus comes to announce this rule, this upside-down kingdom that's gained by love and not by force. This is what he's getting at in, in verse 25, that whoever loses his life will gain it. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Jesus is setting down the upside-down way of the kingdom. Now, this is uh, where, for me, this was fascinating this week. Uh, I came across an article in Christianity Today, uh, and this is the title. It's a long title, but I'm going to give you the whole thing. Proof that political privilege is harmful for Christianity. Subtitle, our analysis of 166 nations suggests that the biggest threat to Christian vitality is not persecution, affluence, education, or pluralism, it's state support. Listen to that last sentence again. The biggest threat, and this is a 10-year study in 166 nations. This is pretty fascinating information. The biggest threat to Christian vitality is not persecution, affluence, education, or pluralism. It's state support. Now, connect the dots in your head with what Jesus just said about those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose it for his sake will find it, and our assumption that what is best for Christianity in our lives is for Christianity to have a place of privilege, ease, and comfort, right? Now, listen, I'm not saying I want to go look for persecution. That's not what I'm saying at all, but I am saying that we have to come to grips with the true desires of our hearts when we hear these words from Jesus. Like, if I'm honest, I've never really taken these words from Jesus seriously. Lose your life to gain it? I just over-spiritualize that. I've never taken these words from Jesus that seriously because I live in a time and a place where, praise God, my Christianity has, for the most part, cost me nothing. My Christianity doesn't really cost me much. Now, I think the tides are changing but I'm actually kind of encouraged by what I've just read in that article and what Jesus seems to be saying in this text. And so I have to ask myself, if my Christianity has cost me nothing, and I have felt more times than not that my Christian, my Christian life isn't as vital as it could be, isn't, is experiencing the life that I see in other people. Like, I don't know if you've been on a, on a mission trip to another place where they don't have all the stuff that we have, but the Christians you run into there have a life in them that I don't often experience. And I'm beginning to wonder, maybe my experience of Jesus is not the fullness of it. And maybe there's more of Jesus to be had when I live in such a way as to lose the very things I treasure so much. Maybe I need not fear whatever may come in terms of the social tides turning against Christianity because maybe that will actually be the key that unlocks for us the life in Jesus, the life in the Spirit that we all say we want. Listen to this quote from this article. In our statistical analysis, I think I have this quote on the screen, yeah. Sorry, it's so small. In our statistical analysis of a global sample of 166 countries from 2010 to 2020, we find that the most important determinant of Christian vitality is the extent to which government, governments give official support to Christianity through their laws and policies. However, it is not in the way devout believers might expect. As governmental support for Christianity increases, the number of Christians declines significantly. Right? Hear that. As governmental support for Christianity increases, the number of Christians declines significantly. That is crazy sounding, isn't it? 
This relationship holds even when accounting for other factors that might be driving Christian growth rates, such as overall demographic trends. Now, here's a chart that kind of shows you uh, the same thing. So you've, you've got the, the, the kind of up and down axis is Christian growth in percentage, and the left to right axis is Christian privilege on a 52-point scale. You'd have to read the research article to to get that, but you basically see that where there is less Christian privilege, there is more Christian growth. That's like the opposite of what I have always thought. But for me, I see this and I hear Jesus say, if you love your life, you'll lose it. And if you lose your life, you'll gain it. And I go, wait a minute, that's what he's talking about. This is simply, this research, I think, is confirming what these paradoxical words of Jesus proclaimed so long ago, that his kingdom isn't going to work like other kingdoms. Worldly means cannot produce an otherworldly kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is not of this world. Right? When Jesus is uh, on trial, he says, my followers are not of this world, or they would fight with the weapons of this world, but they're not of this world. Jesus himself claims that. Uh, If you know this name, George Muller, one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren Movement, his story is incredible. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. Uh, I think I have the biography in in my little library, so if you want it, come ask me. But he was asked what the secret to his amazing life was. Now, he was an incredible evangelist, uh, and he had an orphanage that served many, many, many orphans. Uh, When he was asked about the secret to his amazing life, this is what he said. There was a day when I died. I died to George Muller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. I died to the world. This, this, this is so important. I died to the world, its approval, or its censure. I died to the approval or the blame of even brethren or friends. Jesus sums it all up again in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And what is the path that Jesus is on in Palm Sunday? He's on a path to Calvary. Right? A parallel passage in Matthew 8 tells us that, that this royal life that, that Jesus leads and that he's calling us into doesn't begin with coronation but with crucifixion. Now, what's the reward of death to self? Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's what you get out of relationship with Jesus. Now, I love the way one commentator summed it up. Follow me is the sum of our duty, and where I am is the sum of our reward. Follow me is the sum of our duty, and where I am is the sum of of our reward. That is where true life is actually found. And ultimately, this means honor that we can't even understand that comes from the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 is a reminder of this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 8 through 9 says, none of the rulers of this age understand this, meaning God's wisdom, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The gospel of Jesus is a gospel of paradox. It doesn't, like to put it, it don't make no sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. Come and die that you might have life? That's not how the world works. And Jesus is going, I know, because I'm not of this world. 
And so on that first Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the crowds were cheering him. The Greeks came and said, we want to see you. But how did they actually see Jesus for who he was? Through his death for their sins, for my sin, for your sin. How did they understand him as king? Through his death. The word Christian means little Christ. You're a little Christ. So if you want to call yourself a little Christ, how will those around us see Christ? As we fight to keep our place of honor in our culture, as our, in our society, as we seek to force others to live their lives by the rules that we set up for them? No, that's not how it works. As we've seen, and research seems to be confirming, only as we die to ourselves and find our life in the life of Christ will others see him. Will our Christianity be vital? I want to have vitality in my Christianity and what I'm seeing is that maybe there needs to be some, some suffering along the way in order to lead me to that. Only as we take up our cross and as we let go of any power. That's what the cross, that's what Jesus is doing in the cross. He's letting go of earthly power because he knows there's a greater power. He says, no one is taking my life from me. I'm laying it down of my own accord and I'll pick it back up. Only as we let go of any earthly power will others come under the rule and the reign of the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... We do thank you. As much as we see this research and hear the words of your scripture, which we place so much more weight on than a research project, but we thank you that as much as we see these interesting facts, we still... Thank you for the blessing of living where we live. We can hold both of these at the same time. That we feel blessed, but that, Father, you would help us not to lose sight of the reality that if we give too much of our allegiance to the place where we live, it can turn into an idol. And so, Jesus, we, we ask you, by the power of your Spirit, to help us tear down the idols in our hearts. We, we would tear down the high places of the idols in our hearts and come after you, the lowly king who shows up on a donkey and says, follow me to Calvary. And so I pray, Father, that as we go this week, that we would be able to just let go of our desire to, to hold privilege and power and honor and that we would just be with you wherever you take us and that that would be enough reward for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? I'm going to uh, speak a blessing over us. And then if you'd like to uh, join us uh, for communion, you can stick around for just a couple minutes and we will participate in the Lord's Supper uh, together. This is a blessing from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. 